Hello, Bible love. So glad that you all are with us this third week of Advent. We're going to start today with a prayer. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Also with you. May you who rejoice in the first Advent of our Redeemer at his second Advent be rewarded with unending life. Amen. 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 So we have a second timer here with us today, back by popular demand. Uh, I told one of our listeners that, that Greg was coming back and they were very excited because they loved our last conversation. I oh, personally cool. loved our last conversation. Me Thankfully, too. we're not talking about Leviticus anymore. So we yeah. have the Reverend Greg Milliken, who is rector of Grace Episcopal Church in New Lenox, Illinois, on the southwest side of Chicago. And he is here today to help walk us through Ruth. Greg, how are you? I am great, and I'm glad. I was afraid you were going to say you told them I was coming back and that you lost some subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> Good. No, I'm so happy to be back, and and in many ways, I feel like um, I'm 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 not I'm I'm no way the the right person to talk about Ruth, but I've been mentored by people that are really good at talking about Ruth. So maybe that's why. Yeah. I'm so glad you're here too. Like, um, let me tell you the magic of Bible love y'all. So Alan introduces me to Greg cause we're going to do this podcast together back in May. Right. And Greg and I start to talk and get to be good friends and all that stuff. And next thing I know, I find myself on a visit to Chicago in October to see Greg. So um, I told him before we started recording, like, I felt like I could tease him so much more and I know him so much well, more, much better and um, count him as a very dear friend. So I'm so glad you're here with us to talk about Ruth. I'm so grateful. I feel like all three of us have gotten closer, actually, since then. Absolutely. Absolutely. We bonded over the purity laws and of Leviticus. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Bodily discharge. Right. So let's, I wanted to just say two things about Ruth, and I'm going to shut up and let Greg go. But, and one thing I, that I was telling them before the show, like, I'm so grateful to be in Ruth because Judges was so hard in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think where it is in the Bible is definitely important, right? Like we finished all this hard stuff in Judges, and now we're moving into this book of the Bible that feels like a love story in so many ways. Um, Not a romance, but just the way that that people love each other through this. And then of course it sets up the lineage for David as well, which is super important. So um, I'm grateful for this gift of this love story that we get right here. um, You know, after this, all this horrible stuff in judges, what about y'all? How do y'all feel about that? Yeah. I, I, I think, um, you know, I think for a lot of the zeitgeist and certainly in my personal zeitgeist it's been a lot of there's been a lot of Beatles lately the last few months or so and I was just listening to a podcast re-listening because I'm a geek and they were talking about the White Album 
the Beatles White Album and how a lot of people think that's the best album because it's so all over the place, but you'll get a loud, crazy, insane, hard rocker like Helter Skelter, and then the next thing will be a quiet, you know, little ballad like uh, I think it's Revolution One or something. Mm-hmm. Like. And I think that too, like that Bible is in many ways like God's White Album sometimes because there is a lot of it's a heavy metal on judges, and then here comes a little delicate little ballad. Uh, on I the- love that! What a great way to think yeah. about that. Yeah. Take it. Uh, that has me thinking. You know, we talked the last couple of weeks about um, when we were in Judges about how the shock value of it. Like this is a really tra- Judges nineteen super traumatic story. We talked about that, and basically this dismembered woman's mailed out saying nothing like this has ever happened. We need to figure it out. And so we're left. I'm left like reeling, right? Like how do I get to this place where I'm gonna do these things? Right. So I need a book like Ruth that reassures me of the love that knows no end. Right. Like when we feel like everything's chaos, when we feel like everything's darkness, when it's just junk, we need this reassurance. And this Ruth came up in the lectionary a month or two ago. I can't remember. Cause I, rem- I remember preaching on it and like I used to read Ruth as like the love story. Right. Like I was this, you know, college guy praying some of these words about, you know, an ex-girlfriend mm-hmm. right? thinking, Oh, whatever. And now I look back and I'm like, yeah, maybe whatever. That was evangelical Alan doing that. <laughs> but like, these are about like God's love for us. Yes. Like it's a tale or story. About it in a romantic sense where now we're yeah. kind of talking about it more in God's love for us. Right. Yeah. And there's many yeah. words for that. We sometimes today talk about it as agape love or unconditional love. And the Hebrews would call it um, hesed. You know, mm-hmm. Jews today would still call it hesed. The Hebrew word meaning like righteousness. It means like everything in Hebrew. It's so beautiful. It means like 10 different things. And yet they all connect. And it's that kind of self-giving love um, that transcends like romantic love. Yeah. Well, Greg, talk to us about Ruth. What are your, some of your favorite things about it? What have you learned? What are things that would be important for us? I mean, it's a fairly short book yeah. of the Bible, and um, so talk to us about it. We'd there's love to so hear much, about it. There's so much, and um, and let me name a few things and then see if that leads you to some follow-up questions. But I always, you know, when I teach a Bible study with my church or anywhere, I always try to say, you know, as good Anglicans, Episcopalians, and, and for listeners beyond that, you can be one too uh, in, you know, not in name, but maybe in just in in the heart. And, um, that just means before we even get into scripture, you got to ask who wrote it, when did they write it? What's the context? Uh, and then you can go in and that will inform it. Well, we don't know who wrote it, right? Um, it's kind of exciting to think maybe a woman wrote it and it somehow snuck into the Bible, but we don't know. But Mary Balfour, you mentioned something, um, a few minutes ago that is, I think one of the great mysteries of Ruth, I think if I'm not mistaken, scholars are a little divided as to when it was written. And, Kind of like when you talk about the Gospels, like the Gospel of Mark, if it's written before a certain point, it means one thing. If it's written after, it means something else. If if Ruth is written maybe in the um, the early kind of Davidic or David's reign, about a thousand years BC, then um, then that's kind of one thing. But if it's written 
was other scholars think around 500 BC, kind of in the exile period, that's a whole nother thing too. I tend to go with the latter, which is basically part of the, I think, and this is, you know, I tend to be a little liberal theologian, little L liberal, not, not necessarily political liberal. Um, but I tend to think that the genre of Ruth is a little bit more like, um, kind of myth or legend and, and, and it's dealing with real people that are in the, the, um, that are in the lineage of King David. Um, but we're kind of retrofitting in a little bit of an understanding and an explanation for why some of these people are in David's ancestry. And the big one is Ruth, who is David's great grandmother. And this is the King of Israel. This is the great warrior King who, Slayed Goliath and, you know, became the, the heart of, um, Israel's identity, um, in, for basically for all time forward. And yet there's a little blemish according to ancient Israel on his ancestry, which is that his great grandmother was a Moabite. And so the Moabs, um, were, the Moabites were, um, basically Arabs, we might say. And on the other side of, um, the Jordan river, uh, in the desert. And it's an uncomfortable thing for Israel because the, they were enemies and they treated them as lesser than human beings. You can interpolate all kinds of modern treatment, American, um, Americans with African Americans and so forth. And imagine that woman, a Moabite being part of David's lineage of Israel, the chosen people of God. And it's, it was an uncomfortable thing. So I like to think of Ruth as being a later edition that in is a little bit of a fairy tale to kind of say, here's something to reclaim Ruth and get, and, and understand her from perhaps God's point of view. And so that's the first overarching thing. Yeah. Does that make sense to you too? It does. I, I really love that. And I think that's super important to think about. And and, you know, because there are so few books of the Bible actually named after women. And like, sometimes I, I wonder why this wasn't named Naomi and not Ruth, because it's so much more about Naomi. Yeah, really. yeah. Um, sure. You know, I think that's important. Yeah. So there's only two in the whole Bible that, um, and they're both in the Old Testament. So like having that understanding of why it's there, not just to make up the great grandmother of David, right? But also that there is a little like, oops, in the lineage, right? Like, and and that's a good thing, in my opinion. It may not have been a good thing then, but that is a good thing now, because again, it just brings us all to, we are all God's people, no matter what, no matter what our lineage is, no matter what our bloodline is, we are all God's people. So that makes Ruth and Naomi like even more likable to me, you know, in a lot of ways. You're right. And I think it has implications for what will happen a thousand years later or 500 years later or whatever. When um, Paul and Peter and the early early beginning of Christianity, they have to decide, is this a religion for the Jews, the chosen people of Israel, or is this a religion for all people? And they ultimately make the decision it's for all people, you know, and, and we have to do... Jew and Gentile together. I think this kind of informs that a little bit. Um, you're right. It's one of two books that of the Bible that are named for women. The other one's Esther. Um, 
and you're, I, I know what you mean about maybe it should be called Naomi because um, really the story begins with Naomi and in some ways kind of ends with Naomi too. Naomi and um, her husband Elimelech, which I always read and I want to go Elimelech, Elimelech, Elimelech. So there's a famine in, let me see if I can do a condensed version of it, like almost like drunk history, right? Except sober coffee history. Um, Naomi and Elimelech are, are a Jewish couple. They move to um, Moab because there's a famine in Israel. They're in Moab for 10 years and they have two sons. Um, I, I'm going to mispronounce the names, Malon and Kilion. And they have wives, um, Ruth and Orpah. It's funny trivia about Orpah. Don't let me forget to say it. But um, they, but then all over the period of the 10 years, all three men die. And um, first of all, it seems like horrible luck for the women. But then there's a, there are uh, legal implications which go on here. When you're, when you're the widow of a woman, you're, uh, when you're a woman and you're a widow of someone who's died, you have very few options left and you're almost an outcast through no fault of your own. And your, your options are, um, to, you know, work off the land, beg or be a prostitute, right? So Naomi basically wants to send the daughters away. Go back, go find husbands, take care of yourselves, leave me. Um, and Orpa sat, you know, not, not an easy decision, we imagine. Orpa says, all right, I'm going. And Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay. And so here in chapter one, you get, and I'm going to read it out loud, you get a few verses of the most beautiful passages all in scripture, um, used in weddings everywhere. And um, Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And of course, it's speaking on many levels, right? Um, this is the, I think this is the first example of the Hesed we were talking about, that agape love of God. And you start to see Ruth is a little bit in this story, um, kind of a placeholder for God and God's love for Israel, right? So, um, you get that with the, your God, my God. What does that remind you of from earlier in the Old Testament? Basically, every time God talks about covenant, right? Right. Well, and I, I was thinking about it too. Like, yeah, you do see that at weddings and, you know, you, you're thinking like the couple where you go, you, I'll go, you know, all of that. I did a wedding last year that they use that scripture. But I also just think about the commitment that Ruth was making to Naomi in that moment, right? Like what, lo- how much love can you have to say, I'm not going to listen to the laws. I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do. You are my priority, right? And I, what if we all could receive that kind of love? Like, that's just like something we dream for, right? Um, and I don't know, Alan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it goes to um, it's kind of the never-ending, never-failing Right, yes. that God reaches out like so much in our human existence ends and fails. Right. right, and so can that be the lens through which we see other things? And you know, I think about people who struggle to talk about God as Father, right? Because like their dad was not in any way a mirror of God's love, or whatever it is, whatever in our human relationships prevent us from seeing an aspect of God. Here, no matter what 
love looks like, no matter what any of that looks like, we have an image of through these women who give up a lot, risk everything um, because of love. We have that image of a God who gave up a lot and risked everything to love us. Exactly. Yeah. Which is like the incarnation, right? Like the incarnation is God's story of God giving up everything to love us. And it's a, it's a distinctly maternal, um, it's, it, it plays on the kind of, um, distinctly feminine, um, style of relationship that women have of just things going unspoken, which has a lot to say, of course, for the LGBTQ community. And I'll come back to that um, at the end a little bit, because there's more to the story. That's only chapter one, right? So the other thing we know about women, and I don't know if you all talked about it too much, um, but I love talking about it when we talk about Genesis and uh, and even Exodus with Shipra and Pua, who are the the women that put um, baby Moses in the in the Nile is that often women are not even, we know the, I just told you some of the law, like the facts of life at the time the Bible was composed and, and the times it's referring to is that women had little power. They weren't allowed to do so many things. It's a patriarchal society. Yes. Some would say it's still that way, but really in a horrible way back then still. And so here in scripture, in God's story, uh, women are the agents of change. Women are tricksters, which is a term our professor Judy Fentress Williams has used. Um, and the, that plays out in the next couple chapters. So there is a man in the story, of course, there's some men. Um, and it's a really lovely man named Boaz, who is a, um, a farmer back in, um, back near Jerusalem. So the two women go back to Jerusalem, famine's over, and what you do now is you look for work, basically tilling the land, and you're tilling the land of someone else's crops. That's basically all the stuff they didn't want to harvest for themselves. You're getting the leftovers, right? I mean, talk about a metaphor right there. There's Naomi and Ruth looking for just the leftover scraps of food out in the fields. And Ruth sees Boaz and goes, oh. <laughs> and not just, wow attractive farmer looks good in the sunlight right but instead she goes i think i i have a a, there's a possibility here and then you get this beautiful couple chapters where the two women conspire in a in a cute loving way not in a way to harm boaz but just to say maybe boaz is unattached maybe we can get ruth connected to him and actually it turns out boaz is uh tangentially related to naomi actually so and this is what women do we love to set up people we think it's the greatest thing ever. I have set up many people and I love doing it. So this is not anything but cute and what women do. They're like, oh, let's make that happen. So, right. yeah. so Ruth is basically a rom-com, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Like, actually, no, actually, Ellen, you're right. Um, Judy calls it a, a, a comedic instructor, which is like, that means, it. yeah, it's got some funny parts. And this has some funny parts. It really does. I spent a whole term in seminary um, with in a class where we translated Ruth, you know, verse for verse. And it's funny. And it's and it's adult a couple times, too. We'll get into some of that fun stuff in a second. But it is a, it's comedic in structure in that it's almost like a parable. It's telling you, it's setting up one thing, and then everything goes to hell. 
and then everything gets everything's happy in the end. And that's kind of classic comedy structure as opposed to a drama where everything goes to hell and it stays in hell, right? <laughs> yeah. They so Naomi conspires if if Ruth is going to um end up marrying Boaz or or in this case tricking Boaz into falling in love with her and marrying her. Um, it is good on many, for many reasons because, because he's related to Naomi in, in a distant relative, they become something with the best word in English is kinsman. So related, but not like a brother-in-law. And when you're a kinsman, you actually, in Jewish culture, then you have a responsibility to care for the unattached women in the family, right? So like if, a, if the two brothers die, we've seen this before in scripture, two brothers die and one of them was married. The brother is expected to take the new, the wife as his own and raise her kids and all that. And so when Ruth um, and Naomi conspire to, to basically trick Boaz, what do you do? Get him drunk, right? <laughs> He's drunk. He's sleeping on the floor, the threshing floor of... Um, I think a barn or something and Ruth and Naomi concocts this idea, go in there. And, and then the euphemisms are overwhelming, hilarious Hebrew euphemisms. They knew exactly what they were talking about here. Ruth goes to Naomi. She says, I want you to spread your cloak over me. Now that's double entendre. Spread your cloak means put your veil, put my veil over me so that I'm your bride. And, but what is she really talking about? She's like, mm, I want you to, you know, be intimate with me, right? And that's exactly what they do. <laughs> and then they, you know, everything happily ever after. I mean, it's like Shakespeare wrote it. They do end up falling in love, getting married, and then by Ruth becoming connected to Boaz, uh, Naomi is tangentially then connected to Boaz. So Naomi's going to be okay too. So she becomes part of the family as well. There's a little bit of a last minute comedy of errors where, Another kinsman tries to get to, tries to claim Ruth as his um, his bride to be, and then Boaz stands up, almost like um, the father at in Back to the Future, who has to get up the courage to knock out the bully at the dance, you know. And it's like ah, it's like that. And so Boaz ends up with Ruth, and they have a baby. And the movie I, I just came out and said I feel like it's a movie, but the movie ends with them having a baby, and Naomi is the last one mentioned she's caring for the baby as the great as the grandma and that baby is obed obed gives birth later to jesse and jesse is david's father and all's well that ends well uh, so, spoiler alert greg I know, <laughs> I know neither one of y'all are doing this but um lots of women like to watch hallmark movies during the christmas season um and we all know the story right there's a damsel in distress. There's this good looking man. Um, the town is about to blow up and needs to be saved. And then the good looking man and the woman get together and they have a baby and they save the town. Yeah. That's kind of what I feel like is happening. Right. Yeah. right? Um, is like, and that feels great to me. I love it. I mean, it's just awesome and fun. Yeah. So, yeah. um, that was awesome. Thank I you. Mentioned, so I mentioned the LGBT thing. I, I think this is very important to bring up. It's, it is beloved in the queer community. Um, and, and again, for maybe listeners that are hear that word that I just used and go, what? Re remember again, it's a, kind of a convention of the last 20 years or so. And certainly in theology that we use queer now as a reclaimed word. Um, so the power is taken back by its own community and queer. I think it's helpful to just say it's a, is a catch all for, 
all the possible sexual and gender nonconformity, right? Non-hetero or cisgender. So queer theology then would be looking at the Bible with the lens of what is it, how does it speak to the queer community, the LGBTQ community? Well, there's kind of two reasons. One is it's obviously we're talking about that female intimacy that is a lot deeper than perhaps uh, male female intimacy. The relationship between Naomi and Ruth, where you go, I go. I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond just a ma, a, a woman and her mother-in-law, you know, which normally are kind of frosty relationships. This is something a lot different and a lot deeper. I mean, they don't kiss. That's not, and we're not, you know, we're talking about something deeper that a lot of women, same sex women couples can relate to, you know, that there is, um, something that's a little bit more transcendent than say uh, a more testosterone driven, you know, intimacy. I love that. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that it's boundary crossing. And that's, that's huge for the queer community because often we are feeling like we are, the boundaries are blurred for us. Um, it's, I don't want to say some of us, but some of us, and certainly there were times in my life, I wish the boundaries were clear, but you know, I, Sexuality for many people is fluid and gender is often fluid and it's hard to pin people in labels. Ruth and Naomi's boundaries are fluid. Um, and so is the relationship between the Moabites and the Israelites in the story. And so is the physicality of they're in Moab and then they cross boundaries back to Jerusalem. Again, clear metaphor of they've welcomed the Arab in to the Israel, the community of Israel. And that's, that's just huge, huge, huge. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hearing that the book of Ruth is, is really, really, really important for the LGBTQ plus, um, community. Absolutely. That is, I'm so glad to know that, you know, um, and, and really hear it from your perspective. Um, because as I do have parishioners or folks that come into my life, they're like, that are in our LGBT, you know, and they might say, well, how does the Bible work for me? I, I can really be like, you know, Ruth is a great example. And some of my LGBTQ plus friends have told me that Ruth has been, you know, something that's been really important to them. So as a heterosexual person, I really appreciate that to be able to have references for um, all of God's people, which is really important to me. So thank you for bringing that up. You got it. And there's even one more. Okay. Just off my head again, which is how does the story end? Yes, you're right, Alan. Spoiler alert. I gave away the ending. But it ends with there's a family, right? And how many times in Scripture, even up to this point in the Old Testament, have people been either told by other humans or just the years of age of their life that they can't have children or they they should not be having children? And what does God do? makes it possible suddenly to have children, right? Now think about the plight of a male-male couple or a male-female couple or any other permutation where it's physically impossible for the two of them to have children in a way that a male-female heterosexual couple can, right? Here you have somehow, some way, God made it work that a child was made. And that metaphor is so meaningful to the to the queer community because... You know, it's it's like the line in Jurassic Park, God will find a way, or life will find a way. I just changed it. Life will find a way. God will find a way. Um, and I think that's also not just a message for that community, but for anyone that can't have children, that are struggling with um, 
trying to conceive and all. This is a, a parable to remind you that, um, it's, you're, you are on a journey and God is going to make something beautiful out of it somehow, even though it may feel like a tragedy at the moment. Woo. Right. I don't even, I don't even know how else to end it. I mean, like well, that's about Orpa. Yeah. Okay. We got to go back to the trivia. The okay. Trivia, right. So according to legends, um, and maybe Wikipedia, but I, I've, I've heard this a long time ago. So I've carried around before I even knew the book of Ruth. Um, Oprah Winfrey's parents want, were going to name her Orpa based on this. Um, and I think in a many ways, I think they just were just cherry picking names of just what sounds pretty. Um, because if you look at this book, you're like, why would you pick Orpa and not Naomi or Ruth? Right. Because right. <laughs> all these names mean something like Naomi. I forgot to mention this. Naomi's name means like full or whole. But when Naomi leaves for Moab, um, or no, wait, when she comes back from Moab without, with her now husband is dead, her sons are dead, and she and Ruth come back to Israel, she asks people to call her Mara, which means empty. Um, but, but the text still calls her Naomi because it's almost like the text knows God's gonna fill her somehow with, with the grandchild at some point. So Orpa, I don't know. That's kind of the last name I would have picked. Regardless, they picked Orpa and then to make matters worse, talk about a comedy of errors. The hospital misspelled her name and, and misplaced the P and the R. So that's how o- Orpa became Oprah Winfrey. I love it. Now you can impress everybody at your cocktail parties with that. Yeah, that's awesome. You have your Christmas Eve cocktail party. You got it. You got your conversation starter. Exactly. It's awesome. And before we turned on the the recording today, I wanted to point out that Mary Balfour unconsciously, I think, um, is evoking Ruth Bader Ginsburg in in kind of her own kind of parable of her Ruth Bader Ginsburg look. So kudos to you. Thank you. Naming someone Ruth is a really, that's a, that's a strong statement, I think. I will embrace Ruth Bader Ginsburg today. <laughs> thank you. you um, and thank you, Greg. Um, we, you are our dear friend. We love you. We're so grateful. That was perfect and wonderful in every way. And don't worry, listeners, we are going to dig into each chapter of Ruth. So we got this great overview today and we're going to go further um, through the next couple of weeks. And as always, remember, we love you, but most importantly, God does.